The vaccines under the declared state of emergency were characterized in the federal contracts with the vaccine manufacturers as what are called medical countermeasures. Countermeasures is not a, a medical or a public health term. It's a term that comes out of the military and intelligence community. Right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> and characterizing these as medical countermeasures basically removes a lot of the safety uh, and good manufacturing protocols that would otherwise apply to pharmaceutical products. This is aside from the emergency use authorization. This is literally a biosecurity. At the FDA. <laughs> no, it literally is. So my colleague at the Brownstone Institute um, has has basically done the research to show that in the federal org chart of who is actually quarterbacking and running the show during COVID, you would think Health and Human Services would be quarterbacking our response because that's the department that contains our public health agencies, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA. But no, the Health and Human Services Department was answering to guess which department was quarterbacking the whole COVID response. Turns out it was the Department of Defense. So this was really, this was a really, um, Military, militarized response to COVID. So what do, what do I mean by biomedical security state in, in the title of my book, subtitle of my book? It's, it's the welding together of three things that used to be distinct. Number one is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. Number two is novel technologies of surveillance and con control. We could talk more about that later. And the third is these two things are backed up by the police powers of the state. Again, that whole whole apparatus is still in place. All the legal mechanisms that permitted it are still in place, just waiting for the next declared emergency or crisis to be rolled out. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by a bobblehead. <laughs> I was just, you know, getting ready to say this is Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. Yeah. Stop shaking your head like that. It's weird. Um, thank you guys for coming back for yet another episode. A fantastic one of that one will that will inspire you to take up arms uh, against our enemies by the end of it. Uh, I'll explain why in a second. But before I get to that, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There you can find the backlog of this podcast, as well as everything else we have cooking applications for upcoming programs, AmericanMoment.org slash join, which you can fill out to meet with us, um, as well as many other fantastic things. Um, today we had on Dr. Aaron Kiriati, who uh, was one of the many, uh, thankfully, professors that spoke out against the biomedical security state that emerged during COVID-19. And in fact, that's the title of his book, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State, or rather that's the subtitle. The, the, the title is The New Abnormal. Uh, he used to be a professor at the University of California, Irvine, um, but uh, now is a senior fellow at the director and director of the health and human flourishing program at the zephyr institute the chief medical chief of medical ethics at the unity project um, he is a scholar at the paul ramsey institute fellow at the national catholic bioethics center and on the advisory board of the simon simone whale center for political philosophy as well as a senior scholar fellow and 
at the Brownstone Institute, as well as the fellow and director of the program in bioethics and American democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. As How you many? can see, you have to stitch together a lot of side gigs after your professor job gets taken away. I wonder how many business cards. That's <laughs> like that's like six yeah. jobs. Yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic. But Dr. Kiriati was a, a physician by training in psychiatry um, who went to the University of Notre Dame for philosophy and then uh, completed his MD at Georgetown University. Uh, and, you know, he was he was just teaching bioethics and medicine for many, many years and chaired the ethics department and uh, eventually decided to do some ethics and got fired for it. And we have a fantastic conversation about that and what it was like to be one of the uh, dissidents in the medical profession during COVID, but much, much more than that, namely how the field of bioethics has utterly collapsed, the concerning emergent trends in physician-assisted suicide and the transgender movement, as well as something that's probably going to cause Nick to buy several more firearms tonight, which is his concerns about what the left is going to do next. And I'll leave that as a surprise for you. So make sure you listen to the end. Uh, but we'll go now to Dr. Aaron Curiati. Dr. Curiati, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here with you. Whenever we have guests on, we always love to hear how they got to the point where they are today. And uh, reading your bio, it's it's very clear that uh, it was a kind of career where certain things happened to you at some point. <laughs> Would love to hear that story. Uh, sort of what brought you to the point where you're involved in all the things you are today? Yeah. So the quick version is I studied philosophy in pre-med as an undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame, then went to Georgetown for med school. I got my MD degree there and studied bioethics there, went to residency at the University of California, Irvine, and then joined the faculty there as soon as I graduated. And up until December of 2021, I was a professor in the School of Medicine at UC Irvine, and I was also the director of their medical ethics program. So I taught the required medical ethics course to all the med students. And <clears throat> I did clinical work. I did uh, chaired the ethics committee there. So I was deeply involved in education, in clinical care, in research at the University of California, Irvine. When COVID started, I was part of a, a group put together by the president of the University of California, which is not just UCI, but basically the office that oversees all the branch campuses, UCLA, UCSF. So we had representation from all five of the UC schools that have hospitals and medical schools attached to them. And we were responsible for making COVID policy, especially policy that had ethical implications. So for example, the first policy we worked on was ventilator triage. You might remember yeah. very early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of worry that we were going to run out of ventilators. And it's obviously an ethically and publicly sensitive topic. Okay, if demand for ventilators exceeds supply, what do we do? How do we allocate those scarce resources to do as much good as we can in a way that's fair and just? So tricky policy, um, but we devised one that I think was as good as you can do mm -hmm. in that regard. What are the kinds of considerations that are salient in a discussion? Yeah, like so the, the state of California and some other institutions ran into difficulties related to age discrimination and related to disability discrimination, which we avoided. And things like age can be taken into account only insofar as they directly impact the person's likelihood of a good outcome on a ventilator. So we know that age has some relevance to COVID mm -hmm. in that regard. And it's legitimate to consider how well is this 
person going to do if we give them this scarce resources? Because again, the principle is we're trying to do as much good as possible with what we have, mm -hmm. right? Um, but when you start getting into age-related considerations that aren't related directly to prognosis, like giving something to a 30-year-old uh, over against a 35-year-old, when really there's no risk difference between those two categories, that can, that can create difficulties. So fairness, transparency, what are the principles behind the policy that we used? Um, public input we thought was very important. So we didn't really have time at that point to do the kind of focus groups and you know data gathering from the public that you know would be ideally necessary for a situation like that. But there was some research on that that had been done by other states creating similar triage policies. So we tried to draw upon that. And in the end, I think we came up with something that was pretty good, which didn't run afoul of federal law like some other policies did. Uh, because of discriminating against people based on disability or based on age-related factors that were not directly prognostic. Then we moved on to, to some other ethical issues related to COVID. But when it came time for the vaccine mandate policy that the university was considering, we were not our group was not consulted, which I found very strange because it was clear to me at that point that as sensitive as some of the other topics that we had covered and the policies that we had devised were, this would certainly be the most ethically controversial and the most publicly sensitive policy. And yet it was coming down from on high as a kind of fiat from the president, I guess, or from the regents of the university. And there was no discussion, there was no debate. So I co-authored a piece in the Wall Street Journal with Jer Jerry Bradley, who's a professor of law at Notre Dame, arguing that university vaccine mandates are unethical. And a couple of weeks, that, that was an attempt to get a conversation going at the university, which again, was shut down. I tried to get mm -hmm. a conversation going. Yeah, presumably you had president. tried before you published this. Yeah, thing. exactly. I'm like, hey guys, let's talk about this. And it was just sort of radio silence. And then I sent the article around and hey, you know, let's talk about this, radio silence. So I found that very puzzling and very troubling. And then when the university finalized their vaccine mandate, I started to see that policy harming people that I knew and cared about at the university, starting with staff, a lot of nurses reaching out to me because I had gone public on the issue. They had read the article. Hey, what do I do? I'm going to I'm going to lose my job. And some of them began losing their jobs. Nurses who had cared for COVID patients on the front lines when everyone else was working from home, nurses who had spent decades at the university hospital serving patients were now being just summarily dismissed because they were making an informed medical decision uh, to decline a novel intervention that had you know, very little, long, no long-term safety data and very little short-term safety and efficacy data behind it. I had students reaching out to me saying, I, I'm not a religious person, so I can't really in good conscience submit a religious exemption, but I have moral or ethical or medical reasons to decline the vaccine. And I have no avenue to have those considered. So I'm going to lose my, my place. I'm going to be kicked out of school for making this informed decision or for following my conscience in this matter. So as I was seeing this happening um, and I was reflecting on the fact that I was uniquely situated in the university as director of the medical ethics program, not just to make a sort of public argument in the pages of a newspaper, 
that this was a bad policy, but maybe try to do something to actually change the policy so these people would not be harmed. So I made the, the fateful decision to file a lawsuit in federal court challenging the university's vaccine mandate on behalf of people like me who had natural infection-induced immunity from having recovered from COVID, which I got early in the pandemic. And uh, I like to say, if, if you want to go sideways with your employer, one very efficient way to do so is to sue them in federal court. So the, <laughs> the university wasted no time in, uh, in basically as soon as they could, they placed me on what they called uh, investigatory leave. And then a month later, they placed me on unpaid suspension. And a month after that, in December 2021, they fired me. Now, uh, I could definitely see that as a distinct possibility and likely outcome when I fire, uh, filed the suit um, that they would end up firing me. So it didn't come as a total surprise, but it was still a bit of a shock to the system because my whole sort of professional identity and career trajectory was university-based. I had planned to continue working as long as I could at UCI and hopefully retire there someday and have a sort of you know, honorable closure with the university rather than getting an email one day I, after I had left work for the day, basically saying, you can't come back to work tomorrow. You've been placed on leave. Uh, you can't communicate with anyone on campus, which, you know, includes not saying goodbye to the students or residents that you've been teaching and supervising, not saying goodbye to your colleagues that you've been working with for 15 years. Um, and, you know, I, I went back on campus once, escorted by security to empty out my office. And then wow. that was it. Were you uh, alone in your in your opposition to the uh, University of California's vaccine mandates or, or other issues? Yeah. Uh, so there were a lot of nurses that opposed the mandates. There were other faculty members, two other uh, faculty members at the University of California, Irvine, also lost their jobs or took an early retirement, were forced into early retirement because of their refusal to take the vaccine. What was kind of unusual in my case is that the university had accommodated other faculty members who had declined the vaccine to allow them to work full-time from home. And about two thirds of my work at that time, I could have done remotely. So I was willing to go part-time. I was willing to go on sabbatical for a year or two until the pandemic was over um, to avoid getting fired. But they, they were in no mood after the lawsuit to work with me in that way and the way ways in which they had worked with other faculty members. There was an anesthesiologist at UCLA named Chris Rake, who was also literally escorted off campus by security. That video made the rounds on social media. So he was fired. Uh, there were some people at UCSF that reached out to me, other faculty members at UC Santa Barbara that reached out to me. So I was not the only one publicly opposing this policy. And I had some brave colleagues at the university who, while still faculty at the university, filed uh, expert witness declarations, in my case, in support of me. So one notable example is I got a declaration from Dr. Joe Ladapo, who's you know now a friend. He's the Surgeon General of Florida under DeSantis. But at the time, he was a faculty member at UCLA. So that that was really Dr. Ladapo sticking his neck out for me in you know something that he certainly didn't have to do. He wasn't one of the plaintiffs in the case, uh, but he did put uh, put his own you know professional judgment and opinion 
out there publicly by writing a supportive declaration. So I had some colleagues that surprised me by reaching out and supporting me. And I had some people that I thought were friends that sort of disappointed me mm -hmm. uh, by their lack of support and by their abandoning me in that time of crisis. So when you go through something like this, it's very interesting. You, you quickly learn who your real friends are. You make yeah. some new friends. And some people that you thought were friends end up unfortunately disappointing you. Yeah, what was the outcome of the case? I've sidetracked you there for a second. Yeah, no, not at all. So, um, so the, 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 case, the case outcome hinges on a constitutional issue. So I was making a claim that my equal protection rights under the 14th Amendment were being violated because my form of immunity, which was actually superior to the vaccine, uh, was discriminated against by not allowing me back on campus. The court did not accept that there was a constitutional right at stake. And that was the fateful move because if there's not a constitutional right at stake, they apply the lowest level of scrutiny to the university's policy, what they call a rational basis review, rather than an intermediate or strict level of scrutiny. On a rational basis review, you can't get into any of the science. You can't get into any of the fact findings. So the court basically says, yeah, Cariotti has his science and we have to take it at face value. The university has their experts. We have to sort of take that at face value, but it doesn't really matter because all the university has to show is that they had a plausible public health reason for instituting the mandate. They don't have to show that the policy actually achieved that objective. They don't have to show that it was narrowly tailored to you know, avoid capturing people like me that were unnecessary. They don't have to show that the benefits outweighed the harms. They just have to show they had a plausible reason. At the time, the CDC was recommending universal vac vaccination, even if you had natural immunity. And so basically the court declined to get into the science. And on that basis, there was no way that I could win. So unfortunately, I didn't prevail in that case. But in, in the interim, the CDC has now come out and finally acknowledged that uh, the, the that institutions and policies should not discriminate between vaccinated and unvaccinated for the two reasons that I argued in the case. Number one, the vaccine did, did not prevent infection and transmission of the virus. And so the argument, do it for the sake of others, even if you're not going to benefit, falls apart. And also because natural immunity is robust and enduring, which is exactly what I said in the case. So even though the courts didn't vindicate me, the public health establishment has come around very late in the game. We had all the evidence back when I filed the suit in 2021. But, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to be a year or two ahead of the curve. You lost the battle, but you won the war. <laughs> I, like to, I like to think of it that way. Um, you know, it's interesting the consequences that you in particular have faced vis-a-vis -vis some of the other public health experts that um, made a name for themselves speaking out against the COVID regime because you you were the expert. Like, you know, trust the experts. You <laughs> were the guy. You were the bioethics guy, the medical ethics guy. I mean, how, what was that like to, to suddenly go from a source of institutional knowledge to the bane of it? I mean, what, what did that actually feel like playing out on a day-to-day -day basis? At what point did you know, people who you thought invested in you a, a, a modicum of respect for your expertise suddenly disregard yeah. all of it. Yeah, well, I'm not gonna lie to you. It was, it was hard, it was disorienting, and it was also surreal at times because I got swept up very quickly in the medical freedom movement that was gaining steam around mm -hmm. the time that I got fired and just sort of starting to emerge as a public voice. So I got fired in December and I'm, 
scrambling to figure out where I'm going to get health insurance for my family in January the following year, and also how I'm going to pay the bills, how I can quickly get set up in a private practice so I can see my patients and not abandon my patients. So, I mean, the first month or two where I, I was just scrambling around to patch things together so that the boat would not sink. I was the primary breadwinner for my family. I have five children, um, uh, all of whom are in private schools. So there were, you know, there were bills, bills to pay and things to do. But a month after I got fired, I'm here in DC in January in the 20 degree freezing cold, standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial at the first Defeat the Mandates rally, which I helped to organize. 40,000 people standing out in the freezing cold. And I'm looking down on this crowd, looking up at the Washington Monument and at Congress in the background. And I am, you know, giving, giving a talk to all these people about the uh, the trends that are emerging and the the harsh lockdowns, mandates, uh, and other what I call biosecurity measures that people are finally starting to push back against. And so I'm standing at this podium and I look down to my right and I see a plaque right there next to the podium. This is, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. in 1964, I have a dream speech right here. Yeah. It, was, it was surreal, <laughs> it was strange. And the very next day I'm testifying uh, at the Senate in a, in a panel that was organized by Senator Ron Johnson. And that was the beginning of a very wild ride in 2022, mm -hmm. in which I wrote and published a book, in which um, I continued to be heavily involved in a critique of our COVID regime, all kinds of new developments. I got more and more involved in some think tanks that I was already attached to. So fortunately, uh, my friend Ryan Anderson at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, uh, who where I was already a fellow, came out and supported me, wrote a great piece in Newsweek saying, look, I got vaccinated and uh, that was a personal decision based on my own health history and so forth. But I support Aaron Cariotti, my friend who chose not to get vaccinated and vaccine mandates mm. are not good public policy. Uh, the Zephyr Institute, where I also had an appointment, came out in support of me. And I started doing some work with a new think tank called the Brownstone Institute, which was very focused on medical freedom. Mm -hmm. And so fortunately, you know, a lot of people in this sort of independent think tank world um, gave me a bit of a parachute and helped me to continue doing the work that I was doing in research and public policy and bioethics, public health policy. And so fortunately I landed on my feet. Uh, you know, I managed to patch together income from various sources that added up to more or less what I was getting before at the university. So God had a plan for all of this and he, he took care of me and he took care of our mm -hmm. family. But you know, in those early months, uh, I could see all that now in hindsight. In those early months, it was it was not mm -hmm. clear mm -hmm. how all this was going to go down and what I was going to do next. I'm curious, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like prior to COVID, there would have been a sort of Christian medicine um, and you know bioethics public policy community that that would have existed, and it's not clear to me, at least from the outside that that cadre was unified in its yeah. opposition to the COVID regime. What, if, if that's true, what was the breakdown of, of that group of people who I'm sure that you, you identified very strongly with beforehand? What was that like? Yeah. 
That's a really good question to which I don't have a clear answer. It's, it is pretty obvious, as you say, that Christians probably skew in general, particularly practicing Christians who are, who are faithful to like weekly church attendance, probably skewed in the direction of being somewhat skeptical mm -hmm. of the government's COVID policies because they saw their churches shutting down. They, you know, they, they saw the effects on civil society in ways that, you know, people who were less involved in mediating institutions like churches might not have felt to the same degree. But for all that, the the Christians ha were on the same, probably more or less the same bell curve as the rest of society in terms of the, the range of opinions mm -hmm. on COVID policies. And I think that came down to number one, the fact that this was this situation was novel these measures that the government was taking were entirely unprecedented. Epidemics were not unprecedented. People kept talking about how COVID was unprecedented. It wasn't. We have an epidemic approximately once every 100 years, and this one came right on schedule. And by comparison to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic or other epidemics of the past, this one was relatively mild. So dealing with something like this was not unprecedented mm. at all. We had a lot of wisdom for how to manage infectious disease, going all the way back to the ancient Greeks, the plague of Justinian in ancient Rome. They didn't have a name for it, but they understood the concept of natural immunity. So they had people who had recovered from, at that time it was smallpox, care for those who were sick because they were a sort of buffer. They were mm -hmm. people who were themselves not gonna get sick and not going to spread it. We threw that you know, two millennia old, age old wisdom out the window when it came to COVID and pretended we didn't know what natural immunity was or that it wasn't a thing. We had to put it in scare quotes <laughs> and so forth. But what was unprecedented was quarantining healthy people, the mm -hmm. lockdowns, was shutting down all the institutions of civil society, schools, churches, businesses, and so forth. And, uh, and so Christians, I think, did not have a lot of time to reflect on what was happening, on why it was happening. They were presented very often with bad information because of the control, the strict control of the flow of information on social media and on in legacy media, uh, the inability to publicly criti critique the government's policies without being silenced or getting kicked off social media, or in some mm -hmm. cases being fired. I'm not the only example of someone who was fired uh, for vo voicing opinions um, challenging the COVID regime. And so, you know, Christian wisdom and reflection grows and develops with time in terms of applying it to new problems and new situations. Uh, so that's that's the charitable interpretation, I think. Um, the rather maybe less charitable interpretation is that a lot of them were just operating based on fear. A lot of them were just operating based on a kind of herd instinct, not wanting to stand out. And a lot of Christian leaders and pastors just simply lacked courage mm. to stand up for what was right and what was good, even when they saw people being harmed mm -hmm. because they were afraid of what other people would say about them. Yeah, you had, um, I think it was uh, Megan Basham at The Daily Wire did this story about Francis Collins, uh, yeah. you know, working with a lot of the leaders in the Christian movement to yeah. um, basically, you know, it's Christian to get the vaccine. You, yep. you, you, if you're a Christian, you're basically morally obligated. It was uh, really dark stuff. Um, I think 
one of the things that I'm most curious about here is um, the impact um, after COVID. I, I can mm-hmm. say after COVID, you know, Biden signed this um, thing that, uh, you know, the emergency is now over. Um, and I don't think we've quite reckoned with a lot of the mistakes that were made. To use like church attendance as an example, it's down mm-hmm. like 30 uh, percent. People just stop going. That's right. Um, yep. uh, you know, watching it online doesn't have the same uh, allure, I think. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of curious, like what what do you think the impacts are, you know, over the next decade um, in different parts of our society uh, to not having this public reckoning um, to you know, because it's kind of just faded away. People just gradually, Mm -hmm. you know, stop wearing masks, stop talking about it. What do you think about that? So I think just allowing it to fade away without a clear uh, retrospective, without a clear postmortem on the pandemic and a real reckoning with everything that went wrong is a disastrous way forward. And the reason is the whole infrastructure, even though many of these specific policies that I've mentioned, lockdown, school closures, vaccine mandates, mask mandates, so on and so forth. Many of these specific policies have been rolled back. Most of them have been rolled back in most places. The whole infrastructure that made all of that possible, what I call in my book, The New Abnormal, the the biosecurity apparatus, that is all still in place, ready and waiting for the next declared public health emergency. So people have proposed lockdowns, for example, for climate change, that proposal was floated in the earliest weeks of the COVID lockdowns. Back in March, April of 2020, we already saw serious, well, we already saw academics with serious titles. I was going to say serious (laughs) academics. We saw politicians in power proposing rolling or periodic lockdowns to deal with the climate crisis. And we've seen, even prior to COVID, many issues in the public square being redefined as public health issues Mm -hmm. because health and safety has proven such a powerful fulcrum or or lever to to push things through, especially under a declared state of emergency that otherwise would not be accepted under ordinary circumstances. So for example, if you look at the headlines, just bracket for a moment your views on climate change, but just look at how it's been characterized in the last five, six years, even before COVID, it's moved from being framed primarily as an environmental issue or an ecological issue to being framed always in terms of harms to population health and harms to human health. Um, Racism was declared a public health crisis. You'll remember during the lockdowns, 1,200- were allowed to burn down CVSs. Exactly, (laughs) (laughs) just so. Yeah, 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 just so. So you had this letter signed by 1,200, you know, so-called public health experts with fancy titles saying that in the, I don't know, intersectional hierarchy of public health crises and emergencies, you know, racism stood higher than COVID for those people (laughs) that were uh, protesting after the George Floyd um, issue. So the, what we saw during COVID was a tendency to want to jump from one declared emergency to the next. So we've seen efforts already to create the next public health crisis, whether it was the monkeypox scare or the triple-demic where we're going to have COVID and RSV and influenza. It was going to be a really bad winter, none of which happened, Mm -hmm. right? But this grasping for something for which emergency powers can be declared. Why has the state of emergency lasted so long? And by the way, 
Biden has said it's going to be over, but it's still not over. I think right. May 11th was the day. So as of today, as of our recording, we're still operating under a federal state of emergency mm. in which the president gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers that he wouldn't otherwise have. He can unilaterally declare a state of emergency. Actually, he endorses the state of emergency. The person who declares the state of emergency is the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, a man named Javier Becerra former attorney general of my home yeah, state. Yeah, no friend of yours. California, <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, you know, a, a lawyer with no public health training and no public health experience. And so the executive branch declares the public health emergency, gains additional powers, decides when that emergency is over. In other words, when we who gain those powers are gonna relinquish those powers, those powers also include more access to the purse strings, which are usually, usually uh, controlled by Congress, Right, but emergency, you know, money is available basically for the executive branch and Biden to spend during a state of emergency. So this is a very bad setup vis-a-vis -vis the Constitution. It essentially, brackets the Constitution for an extended period of time. In this case, an indefinite potential period of time. So one of the things I propose at the end of the book in my policy chapter is that we need some sort of checks and balances on the declared state of emergency. This happens at the state level too, by the way, with, with governors doing the same thing. So the legislature either has to ratify it a couple of weeks in and vote to renew it on a periodic basis. Um, they're not the ones gaining additional powers and they should put a check on those powers. Mm -hmm. Or we need to decide and define in, in law what does and does not constitute an emergency, some sort of threshold requirements that would allow for judicial review. So, you know, someone whose business got shut down could file a suit saying they're shutting down my business under this declared state of emergency or my kids are being harmed because they can't go to school under this declared state of emergency and we're no longer meeting the criteria for the emergency and then the courts could take a look at that and say, "Yeah, this has to end." Yeah, what are what are the most worrisome of those 128 extra powers <laughs> to you as a bioethicist? Yeah, so I, I I think there are several actually. So for example, the the vaccines under the declared state of emergency um, were were characterized in the federal contracts with the vaccine manufacturers as what are called medical countermeasures. Countermeasures is not a, a medical or a public health term. It's a term that comes out of the military and intelligence community. <laughs> of right? course. <laughs> and characterizing these as medical countermeasures basically removes a lot of the safety uh, and good manufacturing protocols that would otherwise apply to pharmaceutical products. This is aside from the emergency use authorization. This is literally a biosecurity. At the FDA. <laughs> no, it literally is. So my colleague at the Brownstone Institute um, has has basically done the research to show that in the federal org chart of who is actually quarterbacking and running the show during COVID, you would think Health and Human Services would be quarterbacking our response because that's the department that contains our public health agencies, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA. But no, the Health and Human Services Department was answering to guess which department? was quarterbacking the whole COVID response. Turns out it was the Department of Defense. So this was really, this was a really um, military, militarized response to COVID. So what do, what do I mean by biomedical security state in, in the title of my book, subtitle of my book? It's, it's the welding together of three things that used to be distinct. 
Number one is an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. Number two is novel technologies of surveillance and con control. We could talk more about that later. And the third is these two things are backed up by the police powers of the state. Again, that whole, whole apparatus is still in place. All the legal mechanisms that permitted it are still in place, just waiting for the next declared emergency or crisis to be rolled out again. So the DOD was running our response. And regardless of whether this was a virus created in a lab, I think we definitely have a preponderance of evidence and moving toward beyond reasonable doubt level of evidence that COVID was created at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, probably with help and funding from the United States, from the National Institute of Health, funneled through this outfit called EcoHealth Alliance. But even, even if it wasn't, even if it was naturally occurring, uh, our government treated COVID as though it was a bioweapon. Mm. That's what our response indicated. Um, so make of that what you will. Yeah, well, it's interesting because mentioning EcoHealth Alliance and, and Wuhan gets to what I think is a much um, more interesting in some cases than even what the particulars of what happened in COVID, which is the complete, what feels like eroding of the discipline of bioethics to yeah. begin with. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's even operative in American life anymore. And, yeah. and and it didn't have to be that way. You know, during the Bush administration, this was one of the few things that the Bush administration did well. There was a, a National Council of Bioethics, you know, recognizing that at the turn of the millennium, there are going to be extremely novel new technologies that are going to come out of progress, uh, progress in genetics and in other fields. And, and we should be sure to reconcile these developments to human flourishing. Uh, it's not clear that that happens anymore. What is your macro assessment of the field of bioethics and and really ethics and science more broadly? And then we can dive into some yeah. of the more horrific examples. So unfortunately, there are some notable exceptions, but unfortunately, the general trend in professional bioethics and academic bioethics today is basically to serve as a, a rubber stamp to kind of wring your hands for a little while and scratch your head for a little while, but at the end of the day to green light more or less whatever uh, the scientific and medical establishment wants to do. And much of that is driven by money, by financial considerations. And so the field of professional bioethics has not shown itself to be one that it, uh, that that is occupied by people willing to adhere to even the most basic and fundamental principles. So my opposition to COVID vaccine mandates, my legal case against them, rested for me on the ethical principle of informed consent, which goes all the way back to the Nuremberg Code. The Nuremberg Code is a document that everyone should read. It's not long or complicated. It's like one or two pages long. There's 10 principles articulated in the code. This was developed in the wake of the horrors of Nazi medicine after World War II when the Nuremberg trials, where a dozen Nazi physicians were tried for crimes against humanity, more than half of them were convicted, and some of them actually received the death penalty. They hanged for violating the first principle of the Nuremberg Code, which is the principle of informed consent, that adults of sound mind have the right to accept or decline to participate in research, and that was later extend, extended to accept or decline a medical intervention after giving adequate information about it. So Americans were not given adequate information, so we didn't have the informed part 
a strict control on the flow of information dictated mostly by pharmaceutical company interests, uh, uh, basically dictated what Americans knew and didn't know about the vaccines and about the clinical trials and so forth. So there was no transparency. We had to fight to get transparency on that. Uh, and there was no consent if it was mandated anyway. So people had bad information. And even if they, you know, in the face of that, they went and did their own research and got better information, decided, you know, in my case, I don't want this. In in many cases, because they worked for a certain company or they worked for a government entity, they were forced to take it against their will, which is the very same mistake that the Germans made back in the 1930s and the 1940s that ended up leading to the grossest abuses in medical research and medical practice. So that that's a big problem. There was the transparency issue. I had to coordinate a group of a couple of dozen physicians and scientists to force the federal government to do what it was required to do under federal law in terms of transparency about the Pfizer vaccine clinical trials. So the day that the FDA authorized the Pfizer vaccine, federal law required that all of the clinical trial data, not just the one published paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, but the hundreds of thousands of pages of data from the clinical trial be made publicly available so that independent researchers could take a look at it and so that Americans could be informed about exactly what was done and what the clinical trials showed, not just the curated information that uh, the authors of that paper, all of whom had connections, financial connections to big pharma, uh, were, were saying about the clinical trials. So we had to file a suit in federal court, uh, well, a FOIA request in federal court to get the Pfizer clinical trials data. The federal government, the, F, the DOJ lawyers representing the FDA came back and said, they knew they couldn't say no, but they tried to slow walk it. They said, we'll give you 500 pages a month, which if you do the math, would have taken 75 years to release data <laughs> that they reviewed in only 108 days. We had a good federal, federal judge in that case who said, no, you have nine months to release the data. So we need to see it. The next thing that happened is that Pfizer intervened, not surprisingly, saying, we want to redact the data before it's released. Again, not surprising, that would maybe serve their own interest. But what was surprising and sort of shocking was that the DOJ lawyers representing the FDA agreed with Pfizer and petitioned the court to allow Pfizer to what, redact what the data. What kind of data would they claim they have a right to redact? So they, they wanted to say, you know, there could be proprietary data in there that, you know, company secrets... Uh, type type of stuff, but that that was implausible on the face of it because they had already had to redact those things from the data before they released it to the FDA and other regulatory agencies. So that that job was already done, and the data as it was, as it had been released to the regulatory agencies, should have also been released to the American people. So fortunately, our again good judge in this case said no, Pfizer is not going to be allowed to redact redact the data, and we got a good outcome in that case, but. It shouldn't take the private and expensive action of citizens to force the federal government to do what federal law clearly says the government is required to do in these circumstances. And again, looking at the public health establishment, very few people were demanding this kind of transparency from our public health agencies. Most, most of them just fell in line and became shills and mouthpieces for the government's preferred pandemic policies, vilifying, slandering, silencing anyone 
whether myself, Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Koldorf, Scott Atlas, these new friends of mine in this <laughs> fight, uh, who were criticizing the government's policies, proposing uh, alternative solutions. I hesitate to even call them alternative because they were really just traditional public health approaches to something like this. Uh, they were vilified. In some cases, they were forced out of institutions like like I was. Um, and the, um, the both the public health establishment and the bioethics establishment stood on the sidelines and more or less acted as cheerleaders for the for the regime in power. I'm curious to know, you know, as we start to move to some of these um, other topics that the biomedical establishment has uh, some authority over, like. Um, you know, transgenderism, assisted suicide, that sort of thing. What is the, you know, political persuasion of most people in the in the bioethics yep. field? Um, I, I'm going to take it an, an informed guess and say that they, they probably don't come from the same perspective that you do. But I'd be curious to hear more about that. Yeah. So as with most things in academia, academic bioethicists are going to tilt strongly left. Um, you know, and you're you're going to have certainly you're going to have liber libertarians who maybe um, on other political issues wouldn't be considered left leaning, but are very sort of libertarian, permissive, hands off when it comes to bioethics issues. You know, procreative liberty and just let people do what they want to do. If the market allows it, the technology allows it, it should be permitted. Um, and then you have a you have a lot of progressives who are trying to advance particular social agendas through the mechanisms of bioethics and science and technology and so forth. Um, there are conservative voices in bioethics, certainly. Um, there are many Christian voices in bioethics, certainly, but they don't currently establish, uh, you know, they don't currently occupy sort of established uh, places of authority within bioethics generally. So Bush's Council on Bioethics, chaired by Leon Cass, and then following that, chaired by my mentor, at Georgetown, Edmund Pellegrino, that council was an exception to the rule and gathered together. Actually, it was a very diverse council. People characterize it as just a bunch of neocons, but it, it wasn't. It was it had people from across the uh, political and ideological spectrum. But what was unique about it is that it included on that spectrum some prominent conservative voices, and um, you know many of my friends and, and mentors were deeply involved in the President's Council as members. My friend Carter Sneed was their general counsel. Um, yeah, I teach with Bill Hurlbut and Gil Mylander, who were both members of the council for years. Robbie George, who was a prominent member of the council, is also a friend. So those guys have gone out and helped to cultivate a new, younger generation of bioethicists who are informed uh, by principles other than um, liberal progressivism or other than a kind of strict libertarian approach to these things. But um, there are very few institutional homes for those folks now. There are some think tanks that have you know, taken us in and supported our work uh, and some smaller institutions where you can find those folks. But right now, you know, we, we have to operate as a sort of creative minority in the professionalized bioethics space in order to get a hearing in order to be part of the conversation. And it's a real shame that that's the case, because to the extent that bioethics issues were salient in the year 2000, that is only magnified 
10x. Absolutely, without a doubt. And and there's a couple of key issues that that I want to talk about, um, largely enabled by I think uh, technological progress, but but I think have always been sort of pressing uh, matters of concern. One that I know that you've done a lot of work on is what is called assisted suicide. Yeah. Um, why is it bad? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's bad because for the public to trust physicians, and trust is essential for the doctor-patient relationship to work, right? If you don't trust your surgeon, you're not gonna go under the knife. If you don't trust your internist, you're not gonna take his um, medication recommendations or his diet and exercise recommendations for your you know, pre-diabetic condition or your hypertension or whatever. So without trust, both in specific physicians and in the medical profession as a whole, medicine doesn't work. We could have all the tools in our little black bag to help patients, but if they don't trust us, those tools are totally useless. What physician-assisted suicide proposes to do is to take a profession that has to be oriented toward health and healing. The doctor has a lot of power. There's a power imbalance or asymmetry in the doctor-patient relationship. The patient is vulnerable because of the illness. Right, they're, they're equal in dignity, equal in rights, but there's an asymmetry in power in that relationship. And so a doctor has to take his knowledge and skills and prerogatives. Doctors are given a lot of power. They're given a monopoly on certain things like prescribing or doing surgery or ordering an MRI test or whatever. They have to use that always and only at the service of healing the patient. And if they start using that for anything else, it's gonna undermine the trust that the public has in physicians, right? Is my doctor recommending this because it's actually good for me or does he have some other motive, financial inducement or um, a social program, you know, operating in the background that he's kind of an agent of that's behind this recommendation. And so the minute we turn our knowledge and skills toward anything other than health and healing, uh, that is going to end up harming patients. And f- physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia do that in the most radical way because doctors become, uh, rather than being agents of healing, they become agents of the patient's death, right? And so in the simplest terms, it's bad because doctors should not kill their patients. So assisted suicide is helping the patient to kill themselves by providing the means for them to do that, mm-hmm. right? If I give you a deadly drug, knowing what you're going to do with that. It's like me giving a suicidal friend a loaded gun, knowing that my friend is not going hunting with that gun, but he might turn it on himself. And you would be charged with a crime for doing that. No, exactly. In any other context, you would be charged with a crime. You would be an accomplice uh, to to a crime. And so assisting someone to take their own life is illegal in, I think, all 50 states right now, with the exception of doctor-assisted suicide in the states in which it's been legalized. There's also the slippery slope concern, which you know the other side likes to mischaracterize and say, there, it's not automatic that we're gonna move from assisted suicide to euthanasia. It's not automatic that we're gonna expand the indications for assisted suicide. But in fact, the historical record shows that that's exactly what has happened. So in Canada, for example, you can see them accelerating off the quick Uh, off the cliff as quickly as they possibly can. And you see people there being euthanized simply because uh, they're living paycheck to paycheck and something happens. And then they're in financial straits. 
and they, they lack government support and they're depressed. They may not even have a terminal illness and they go to their doctor and they, this has been well-documented now. There was a piece in the New, New Atlanta just a couple of months ago uh, documenting several cases along these lines. And so the, the slippery slope operates because the moment you abandon the principle that I articulated before, that doctors have to be always and only agents of health and healing, and they can't use their knowledge and skills to torture patients at, you know, to torture prisoners at Guantanamo or to participate in capital punishment, right? Regardless of your views politically on capital punishment, the AMA takes the, the, the position that doctors should not participate in capital punishment because it confuses the public about what doctors are supposed to be doing and what their role is, right? If we need professionalized executioners because the state is going to administer capital punishment, those people should not be physicians. Mm -hmm. It's actually not hard to train someone to, to kill someone else using a lethal injection. Um, and that, that's a view that I endorse for the same reasons that I endorse. Um, even, though I, even though I believe that capital punishment may be justified in certain narrowly defined circumstances, I don't think doctors should mm. be a part of it. Right? Yeah, it's the, it's the drifting. What it sounds like the other side wants to believe here is that the category of doctor is coterminous and, and, and fully overlapping with, with a broader category that might be called, you know, medical scientist and and, right. and someone who 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 studies and utilizes medical technology mm -hmm. which is not the same thing as doctor as like a, a profession that has existed for millennia that's right so a doctor is a sort of technician of power mm -hmm. uh that knows about pharmacology and could use pharmacology for healing if that's what the patient wants or could use it for killing if that's what the patient wants and this view of deprofessionalized de medical view is has been creeping in for many years. So we see a shift in language very often from doctor patient to provider consumer. Right? <laughs> and well, the consumer is always right, right? If, yeah. if you've got this thing and I want to buy it and you don't give it to me, there well, there's laws against that. You can't discriminate, you know, based on the reason that I want to use this or whatever. So that's that shift has been going for a long time, and, and the word profession actually goes back to the ancient Greeks. So we use the word profession today to designate most occupations, but in the ancient world, the word profession was used to designate only four occupations. One was medicine, another was law, the third was teaching, and the fourth was the priesthood or the clergy. What do all four of these things have in common? They all have in common that they're characterized at their core by a relationship, doctor-patient, priest-penitent, teacher-student, uh, lawyer-client. And they're a relationship in which there's an asymmetry of power, right? If you don't have a good lawyer and he abuses his power, you might not achieve justice in your suit or you might go to jail unjustly because you didn't get an adequate defense. And so all four of these professions in the ancient world did something before they embarked on their role. Uh, they publicly professed a promise, an oath, to use their knowledge, skills, and power only for the sake of educating the student, only for the sake of seeking justice for their client, only for the sake of ministering to the religious or spiritual needs of the, the person. And in the case of medicine, only for the sake of health and healing. So mm -hmm. that and of course, this oath for doctors was the ancient oath of Hippocrates, right? Which has provisions in it against 
giving a deadly drug to a patient has provision uh, provisions in it against administering an abortifacient uh, to end the life of an unborn child. This was a pagan pre-Christian document, mind you, 4th century BC, that recognized that the public has to trust doctors because doctors have a lot of power. And one of the ways that we try to um, encourage trust or win the trust is to make a solemn public profession of who we are, what we do, and what we aim at. That notion of professionalized medicine is rapidly being abandoned in favor of a kind of consumer-driven model that says, if I want it, you can provide it, you have to give it to me. And that that has implications across a lot of the lightning rod issues that we see in medicine from uh, transgender care to uh, physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia to the overprescription of psychotropic medications in certain contexts. So th- this is a deep, very deep principle that when you abandon it, uh, very quickly, uh, a once noble and <laughs> a profession can can rather quickly go off the rails. I want to get to all those issues <laughs> you just brought up in a minute, but uh, to give us like kind of a sense of scale, how many doctors are you know violating the Hippocratic Oath by you know currently administering this? How many people yeah. are 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 doing this on an annual basis in yeah. the U.S. and Canada? So. Uh, in my home state of California, uh, fortunately, most doctors are opting out of physician-assisted suicide. So things have not accelerated in California. And is California the only state? No, there are a handful now. So uh, off the top of my head, I, I I can't remember all of them, but I know it was legalized in Montana by a court decision. It's been legalized, I believe, in Massachusetts maybe in New York, don't quote me on these, but mm-hmm. I think there are six or eight states besides California, certainly Oregon and Washington legalized Dr. Assisted Suicide before California. Um, but back in 2014, 2015, I was very heavily involved in these debates in California. I was also chairing the ethics committee and the ethics program at UCI. So I helped to develop the policy at the university mm-hmm. around assisted suicide where we tried to put some additional safeguards in that policy that were not required by the minimalist requirements of the law. As a consequence of that, there have been uh, very, very few cases of doctor-assisted suicide at my former university. Um, But one of the interesting things that we did around that time, right after the law was passed, was that we polled physicians and nurses as to uh, whether they first of all whether they thought it should be permitted at the university and a majority of people said yes we should offer this to our patients and then the second question was if it was permitted as a physician would you participate either in administering uh the the lethal drug to patients uh or being one of the consultants that you need a second opinion to sort of endorse this uh that would uh be involved as someone that could you know, give a second opinion on this. And uh, a much smaller proportion of doctors uh, said yes to that. Maybe about a third of doctors said, yes, I would participate. But then when it came time to actually uh, put their names uh, on a on a private list at the at a medical staff office to participate, we ended up with only like one to two percent 
wow. only a very small handful of physicians who ended up when push came to shove being in fact willing to participate not just answering a question on uh, a form about what they thought about it in general mm -hmm. but i think most doctors still have somewhere deep within them that basic hippocratic ethos mm -hmm. right and while you know politically or ideologically they may lean in a certain direction and so feel like yeah this is you know this is something that i should endorse when it comes to their own personal involvement in it, it's very, very, very hard to find physicians in the United States that want to do this. So you end up with a, a very small handful of real diehards, true believers that um, in some cases, like the case of Dr. Lonnie Shavelson up in the Bay Area has set up a clinic just to do this, mm. right? Uh, and and most of the referrals end up going to a very, very small number of people. Unfortunately, the rest of medicine hasn't become entirely infected or tainted by this bad virus. I don't know how long that situation will last. Canada has certainly shown that the medical establishment and many, many more physicians are getting on board to participate in euthanasia and assisted suicide there. Uh, it's probably a long conversation to unpack what are the maybe the cultural and legal differences about what happened in Canada versus mm -hmm. California that might account for that disparity. But it's certainly not out of the question that in 10 or 20 years, California and other states that have permitted this could go down the same path. Do you know, like in the United States, roughly how many people are talking about that have actually like gone through with it? Like, I think... Um, I don't have that number off the top of my head. I want to say somewhere in the neighborhood, eighteen hundred people in California. Wow! Have, in in how long? In how long of a time? So period? it was legalized in twenty fifteen. Went into effect in twenty sixteen. Wow. So, um, and and one concerning trend is that that number increases a bit every year. It hasn't exploded mm -hmm. like the numbers have in Canada, but it is going up every year. It's certainly trending in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Um. What's interesting is that this mentality that has led to the proliferation of physician-assisted suicide, if you were sort of doing a quote-unquote organic stepwise expansion or, or, or scope creep of the medical profession, um, abortion may have come after it. Like you, you would think it's like, oh, first you have the right to kill yourself, then you have the right to kill your child. Like that would be the order things go in. And, mm. and that's not how it went. It's like first abortion was instantiated um, as a, kind of a de facto right in much of America. Um, and then they backfilled it with, oh, and right. you can also kill yourself if you'd right. like as well. Um, has the sort of demography of how doctors feel about it matched how the abortion issue historically proliferated, yeah. like very few doctors. I mean, it, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. I, I think so far the answer is yes. Yeah. You see the same thing in medicine with abortion. You see a strong push to train medical students and residents, particularly in family medicine, obstetrics and gynecology, obviously, to get them all trained up in abortion, exposed to abortion. Mm. Is that required in medical schools? It's required in most residency training programs. And there are pushes against conscience rights to require it of medical students. But federal law still protects medical students and residents from retaliation. Uh, the Church Amendment and the Hyde Amendment have specific conscience provisions in them, which HHS is currently not enforcing. That's a problem. So, so if you're a medical student 
looking to become an if you want to become an OBGYN, you will have to at least be trained in it. Yes, because it's going to be very well. I shouldn't say yes. Legally, the answer is no, right? But you're going to have a very tough uphill battle because you're going to get a lot of pressure from most residency training programs in obstetrics and gynecology to participate in abortion. So I, I think a really strong uh, resident with a really strong spine could probably navigate that and insist that their legal rights be um, upheld in that environment, but it would still be tough. And, would probably and that suffer. training would entail performing the procedure? It would entail at least learning about the procedure. Um, there would be pressure certainly to assist on a procedure and perhaps pressure to perform one as well. I need to move further in the woods and never let my wife see a doctor again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize it was this bad. Like, are there are there like religious exemptions for this sort of thing or like? Uh, so again, federal law protects conscience rights, which it would include religious objections to this. Um, so there are some legal protections, but there's all kinds of subtle forms of retaliation and pressure wow. that can that it can probably get around that. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly pro-life physicians who do deliveries and do mm -hmm. prenatal and pregnancy related care. Yeah. Many of them, in my experience, have sort of converted to the pro-life position after their period of training and then mm -hmm. came to see later that, you know, I can't do this anymore. Or I've, you know, after my training, I never got involved in any abortions and um, because I wasn't interested. And now I'm convinced, you know, that that's the right thing. And I'm, you know, nothing could make me mm -hmm. do that no mm -hmm. matter how much you try to induce me. So there, there are people out there that you can find that would take that position who under, underwent some sort of moral or religious mm -hmm. conversion after their training. But it's a real serious problem now that it's hard to get through the training without experiencing, I would say, a lot of pressure to compromise on one's um, ethical convictions or religious convictions in regards to abortion, uh, contraception, gender-affirming care, things that many people would find objectionable. So that, that transition that was, we both said, whoa, to, uh, was the idea that we've moved from a doctor-patient dynamic to a provider consumer mm. dynamic mm -hmm. um i actually taped an episode with mary harrington yesterday where she framed um transhumanism um as as something more um subtle than you know robot arm it's it's the transition of 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 elements of the field of medicine to fixing something that is wrong with someone to doing anything they want for them that's uh, right and Abortion would 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 fall under this category. Um, physician assisted su suicide would would fall under this category, uh, and the transgender movement would fall mm -hmm. under this category. You mentioned earlier in very plain terms that that money is a lot of what talks um, when it comes to some of these unfortunate trends in bioethics. Uh, say more about that. That's a pretty risky thing for a conservative to say is that money influences uh, uh, the the world around us in that way. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, I mean, to all the free market diehards out there, yeah. uh, this might not be very palatable. But let's take um, let's take so-called gender-affirming care. These gender clinics that are popping up at university hospitals and in private practice all over the place now that are just exploding as the the social contagion phenomenon of transgenderism is exploding. Why is the medical establishment taking such a keen interest in this? Well. 
these things are usually housed within pediatrics departments. Pediatrics historically has been the lowest paid medical specialty among all medical specialties, perhaps a commentary on our society that we invest <laughs> less in the health of children than we do in the health of adults. Uh, so that's not a good or, thing. Or, or in cosmetics and dermatology. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, just <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah. Um, and, and so they've, you know, they tend, pediatric departments tend to not have a lot of money, not have a lot of power, not have a lot of clout within the medical establishment. And here they have a sort of vanguard issue um, that they can champion that uh, will get a lot of cheers from the crowd. And more probably more important for them, for their purposes, is that you're creating a patient population that is otherwise healthy, that would have no reason to come in for services and providing them ongoing, very expensive services more or less for the rest of their lives. You're creating lifetime patients yeah. that have to come back to get their puberty blocking hormones or their cross-sex hormones indefinitely, unless and until they have surgery to remove their gonads. If you're on puberty blockers uh, or you're on cross-sex hormones and you stop taking them, you don't revert to the phenotypic characteristics of your natal sex. You don't go back to looking like what you are biologically, you revert to a kind of middling state that's neither here nor there, mm -hmm. right? So these patients are entirely dependent. With a lot of like hormonal imbalances and health issues. Oh yeah, a lot of health issues from osteoporosis to you know other long-term chronic effects of these hormones and unknown effects of these hormones because they haven't had decades of testing yet to see you know what look what this is going to look like after you've taken these for 30, 40 years. That is a very lucrative business for an otherwise not very lucrative medical specialty. So that's one of the reasons it receives institutional support. Now these gender clinics would collapse very quickly if states extended their statute of limitations just a few years on medical malpractice. So <laughs> look, I'm, I'm not a big fan, as a physician, I'm not a big fan of really permissive me medical malpractice claims. Medical malpractice serves an important role within medicine to check some of the worst abuses and excesses and mistakes that physicians make. So what we know based on the research on transitioning is that regret is not uncommon, but it usually appears only several years down the road. So there's an initial subjective satisfaction as someone is taking on this new identity, uh, maybe feels that I'm now more comfortable in my skin and this is a good thing for me. Uh, and it's typically only after 10, 15, 20 years in many cases that people look back and say, oh no, I think that was a, actually a big mistake and I wanna do what little I can to try to undo some of the damage that was mm -hmm. done. Medical malpractice statute of limitations is typically in most cases three to five years, right? So we do have some key cases, several of them in California of young people who were railroaded through this process at very young ages, 13, 14 years old, who are now coming back and saying, I was wronged, I was harmed by this. Kaiser Permanente in California is being sued. There's another medical clinic in California that's being sued. So there are some very early detransitioners who have enormous courage, because you can imagine the kind of vitriol backlash hatred that these people are receiving totally. publicly for doing this. 
uh, and they're still very young, right? This is a, mm-hmm. this is a lot for a teenager to take on. Um, but there are a few that are doing that. And if that statute of limitation was extended uh, to 10, 15 years, at least for these kinds of procedures, where the harms may not manifest immediately, whether psychological harms or medical harms may not manifest immediately, then these gender clinic clinics would collapse overnight. The lawyers would take care of it. This this whole yeah. thing would be over next week. One simple trick. <laughs> yeah. So any any policy folks out there that have, you know can influence those laws in various states, that's how that's how this would get done. Can you give us like a a sense of scale for how much money there is like in this industry? You know, if you're an individual that's attempting yeah. to do this, like how much does it cost on a monthly basis? How much are these companies getting? So I, I don't have good numbers at my fingertips for that, uh, but certainly the medical interventions, medical treatments, particularly the surgeries are enormously costly in the tens of thousands uh, to hundreds of thousands of dollars. So for someone to go through a full transition, which includes so-called top and bottom surgery and the hormones and all the rest, um, you're, you're in at least a few hundred thousand dollars for this, whether you're paying for it or an insurance company or the government-based insurance is paying for it. And then there are ongoing cosmetic refinements that many people want to continue pursuing from you know trimming down the, the male Adam's apple to you know, you you name it, and the the plastic surgeons and the rest of the you know rest of the medical industry is getting yeah. in on this grift, um, and so the, the costs can very easily skyrocket, particularly if this is characterized as a you know fundamental human right that insurance must cover. Yeah. Once people are not paying for this out of their own pockets, there's really no ceiling on uh, how costly extensive and expensive this whole enterprise can become yeah i'm curious about about that like what what's been the movement on insurance companies covering this over the last like five years so i think various states have done uh various things i i don't know the current state of play i haven't paid as much attention to this issue uh in recent years because i've been focused more on the public health yeah. uh, end of things um but I, I believe there are at least pushes for uh, Medicare to cover some of these procedures. There's a lot wow. of private insurance companies that are now covering these procedures. There's some proposed state laws. I think some of them may have may have passed already to require insurance companies to cover some of these procedures. So there's definitely a trend moving in that direction. And I, I don't know the exact state of play uh, but right now. But it's certainly increasing over. It's like, increasing. Yeah. yeah, without a doubt. So that 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 movement is gaining ground in momentum but mm-hmm. they actually the movement to push back is also gaining ground in momentum so this was not not an issue that you could really have a public conversation about uh 3 4 5 years ago and we start we're starting to see some people including some people on the left now saying oh well wait a minute you know what are we doing like grown ups hey you know do whatever you want Maybe don't make me pay for it, but do whatever you want. I'm not going to stop you. But when we're talking about children getting funneled into this at very early ages, you know, there's there's a lot of people both on the right and on the left who are now willing to step out and say, I think this thing has gone too far. This, you know, this is not good. Mm-hmm. Using your previous 
intellectual and moral framework for what a doctor is, do you think adults should be able to do whatever they want? On well, this? no. So these procedures are, are not healing. What you have with gender dysphoria is not a disease of the body that requires bodily interventions, mm -hmm. right? You have an overvalued idea of the mind that has become in many cases, a, a driving preoccupation of people and a fantasy that if I get this, my difficulties and distress will be solved. So the threat that people currently hang over the head of parents, for example, if they have a kid who comes out and says, I'm trans, then the establishment tells the parents, you have to affirm your child, you have to get them into these medical interventions if they want them. Because if you don't, your kid is gonna kill himself. Right, So we know that there are really bad mental health outcomes for people who identify as LGBT, particularly those who identify as transgender. And the proposal is this so-called gender affirming care is gonna solve that, right? We actually have no empirical evidence for that. We have no empirical evidence that stigma, social <clears throat> stress is why these people have higher rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, and so forth. Um, but it's presented as though we do have evidence and it's presented as though these interventions are gonna solve that. The best evidence we have suggests that the outcomes 10 years down the road are really terrible. So the largest study of individuals post-transition, 700 people in Sweden, half of them female to male, half of them uh, male to female, largest study ever done, 10 years down the road, which is hard to follow these people 10 years out. So very good study showed that these folks still had four times the rate of all-cause mortality compared to the general population, four times the rate of psychiatric hospitalization for things other than gender dysphoria than the general population, and most concerningly, 19 times the rate of suicide as the general wow. population. That's a staggering number in psychiatric epidemiology, staggering number. So clearly, the uh, the transition, the so-called gender affirming care didn't solve those underlying psychiatric issues, right? So we need more research into how to solve those underlying psychiatric issues. We need more efforts aimed at helping those individuals uh, to deal with those underlying issues that are that are driving this discomfort. And what we see in uh, transgenderism is analogous to what we see in other psychiatric Conditions. So you take anorexia, for example. Anorexia involves uh, difficulty uh, accepting the body that I have, a misperception of my body as being somehow wrong, right? I'm grossly underweight and yet I still think I'm fat. And an identity struggle that's bound up with that and other poor mental health outcomes like yeah. depression, anxiety, suicide, and so forth that also tend to go hand in hand with it. Well, we don't take a 13-year-old girl with anorexia who weighs 74 pounds um, and do liposuction on her because she thinks she's fat, right? The intervention does not need to occur at the bodily level of affirming what she needs. I mean, in fact, she needs nutrition and she needs, uh, she needs refeeding and nourishment, right? Um, but she also needs to get a handle on the psychological issues that are driving that behavior of starving herself mm -hmm. and that perception of her body as being something totally other than what it is. So there, there's a rare condition called apotemnophilia 
in uh, in psychiatry where individuals you could say identify as an amputee. Right. They believe they were born in the wrong body, that they should have an amputated limb. Sometimes they present for treatment to get an amputation. Typically they're declined, of course, because doctors- There was a New York article about this like decades ago. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, uh, and, and some of them even take the very radical step of attempting self-amputation of a limb, right? Just take a hacksaw and cut off my arm. Um, the fact that they engage in self-mutilation is not a reason for doctors to do it instead, right? But it you know, it shows that these kind of conditions can be very real and very severe. Mm. So there's no doubt that the very small number of people who who have genuine gender dysphoria are suffering a lot. The, yeah. the question is not whether or not we help them. The question is how do we best help them so we can get a good outcome? We have enough evidence now that transitioning in gender affirmative care does not produce good outcomes. So we have to be searching for other ways to mm -hmm. give them better outcomes. And it has to start at the level of mental health, not at the level of bodily intervention. Well, and uh, to give another analogy of like a, a less potentially controversial one that has proliferated because of, of this mentality is you're starting to see all the time these barbaric procedures people undergo to like add an inch and a half to their height. Yeah. Like oh, some yeah. crazy stuff they'll do to their entire yeah. skeletal frame. And it's like, this is what the, like, I, I am rarely the guy that says, oh, it's all about, you know, worldview and ideology and like ethics. And that's the consequence for all of the bad things in society. But like, this is the, like a basic shift in the mentality of what the medical profession is. That's right. Completely cascades into, yeah. into total anarchy. Yeah. I mean, getting back to transhumanism, kind of the central issue now in transhumanism is, uh, you know, in addition to all the things that you mentioned before, uh, the question of human enhancement. Yeah. Right. Taking healthy people and making them, quote unquote, better than well, bigger, faster, stronger, smarter through biotechnological or medical interventions. Right. So we can use certain drugs to make people who are sick, healthy. We can perhaps use certain drugs to make healthy people smarter. Uh, we can use gene editing. We can use all kinds of novel interventions, creating human cyborgs, implanting chips in your brain. Um, you know, the, the possibilities, according to the transhumanists, are endless. And uh, what I argue in, in the book um, and elsewhere is that this attempt to make human beings better than well, this so-called attempt to enhance individuals ends up becoming dehumanizing. Um, and so transhumanism is, I would argue at the end of the day, ultimately a religious ideology. It's a kind of neo-Gnostic kind of revival of ancient Gnostic ideas about uh, the need to escape the confines of the body uh, the need to transcend the physical limitations of the body. The really overheated transhumanists, especially mm -hmm. the ones in Silicon Valley, have as their ultimate dream, living th forever, so eternal life, which is clearly a religious aspiration, by uploading the contents of your consciousness and your brain into some mainframe computer cloud in the sky that will allow your consciousness, supposedly, I was very weird metaphysics <laughs> behind all of this, right? They clearly is not going to work. But the idea that this is where we're headed, you know, radical life extension. So living not just to a ripe old age of 110 by maximizing your health and well-being, mm -hmm. but living to the ripe old age of 200, 400, who knows how many years. Mm 
uh, is part of the transhumanist project. If you really get down to what the diehards want. In fact, there's some people that are such ardent believers in this ideology that upon their death, they are cryo preserving their bodies. They're freezing their bodies. Or for a discounted rate, you can just freeze your head because presumably <laughs> you won't need the rest of your body, right? There's a company in Arizona that will do this for, I, you know, I don't know. I, last time I checked, I think it was like, it was a lot cheaper to freeze your head. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe like $80,000 or something. Uh, your whole body was, was a lot more. But the idea is we're just gonna keep you in cryopreservation until we have the technology to allow you to live forever and then we're going to thaw you out and give you whatever you need and so who pays for that die. well yeah i mean that's i that's a very good question i'm not sure like what if you the people have thought through the long-term consequences yeah. like once you give them your money and you're dead you know i mean who's gonna say that you, they're not gonna unplug unplug you in 20 yeah. years when they run out of customers or something yeah. you better not forget to pay the power bill <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah. so it's um, but but you know my point is like these people are serious, yeah. right? And it's not just a group of fringe people. It's, you know, Nick Bostrom, um, professor at Oxford University, Ray Kurzweil, former uh, uh, VP and engineer I have a friend who's, convinced that, Gurgle, Nick, who's convinced that Nick Bostrom is the Antichrist. Like, <laughs> like, like the actual, like if there's one guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna speculate on on that. I think there are many potential candidates these days who might be tapped for the role. Um, but, um, yeah, so th this is an ideology that's very influential in certainly in Silicon Valley in tech, and it's seeping into mainstream bioethics mm -hmm. as well. So, on um, a couple of these issues, namely uh, the, the the transgender issue, um, do you think that the field of psychiatry was the tail wagging the dog on this? Yeah, so that's a great question. A lot of the initial proposals for human enhancement used psychotropic medications. So when I studied with Ed Pellegrino, I wrote a paper back in medical school on the use of um, antidepressant drugs to basically sort of alter your personality, make you a little bit more extroverted. What's turned out to be uh, more popular among the general public has been the use of stimulants and the abuse of stimulants for cognitive enhancement. So we know that if you have attention deficit disorder, which is a real disorder and, and impacts people in sometimes in profound ways. And if you treat it well, psychopharmacologically, you can really improve uh, a young person's functioning. Uh, but the overprescription of stimulants is in many cases overdiagnosing of ADHD, where you just have you know boys who are a little bit restless or a little bit more active than the classroom environment that we have created wants them to be. But also you have the abuse of stimulants among college students, graduate students, professionals, because if you give a stimulant to someone without ADHD, you can improve their attention and concentration a little bit, right? So this is, this is an example of taking something that can help heal something that is impaired or disordered and using it on healthy people to make them quote unquote better than well. And this creates a kind of uh, drive and competition at the level of, you know, pre-medical students trying to get into medical school, where you know their peers or colleagues are abusing stimulants to improve their performance on cramming the night before the test or their performance in taking the test, and now suddenly I feel the pressure, even though I don't want to take this drug, to do the same thing just in order to keep up. So, um, in many ways, psychiatry was the leading edge of 
some of the actual real world misuse of interventions in order to try to pursue some of these enhancement proposals. Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, it's it seems like the controversial nature of like transgender surgery and cross-sex hom- hormones and stuff is is fairly cognizable to to ordinary people but but it seems like it's a, it's a harder sell to tell people that they shouldn't be allowed to to take their Adderall especially mm-hmm. in this town sure what, what what's the moral argument against yeah. it so I mean, I think there are, are several. Number one, it is a kind of ab- abuse of the body to take something that certainly has known risks mm-hmm. and administer it to people who are not sick. So we take on medical risks generally when uh, when the medical benefits outweigh those risks, and those risks are acceptable when you know you have cancer mm-hmm. or when you have diabetes or you know when you have an infection and need antibiotics. But when you're entirely healthy, the idea that a doctor should prescribe something with known risks to someone who's entirely healthy, I think the moral calculus for that is very, very different. Mm -hmm. So that's one issue. Uh, Another issue is what kind of society are we creating by doing this? Is our already hyper-competitive society improved by introducing stimulants to make hyper-competitive environments even more competitive and if everyone is enhancing themselves right are any of them actually getting ahead does this become a kind of hamster wheel of more 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 Mm -hmm. because as soon as i start doing it my colleagues in my competition is going to start doing it Um, so is anyone actually benefiting Mm -hmm. uh when we're just getting to the point where um now it's not just stimulants, but it's the latest cognitive enhancer added on top of that. And we're, we're assuming risk upon risk mm-hmm. um, just in order to survive. Yeah. And this the, it'll be laundered through the idea of the like, you know, cutting edge scientist pushing the bounds of human innovation. That's right. Um, using, you know, Adderall to make that easier. But in reality, it's going to be used by people to like, do email jobs at each other a little bit faster. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I mean, I, I, again, like just to, uh, you know, just to alienate the, um, uh, the the free market economic folks, it's also going to be pitched as a sort of consumer-driven choice, right? Um, but I, I think you raise the question of what kind of choice is it when uh everyone else is doing it. And I mean, you, you could look at the example of sports. If we permitted performance enhancing drugs in sports, mm-hmm. what's going to happen to the very, f- you know, the, the few professional athletes who really, really, really don't want to do that when everyone else is doing it mm-hmm. and they're not getting punished for it? Mm-hmm. What's that going to do mm-hmm. to professional sports? And can you really say that the person who's trying to make it in the NFL or NBA, mm-hmm. who's declining performance-enhancing drugs, has a choice, has a consumer market-driven choice in whether or not they're going to get mm-hmm. on board with this, right? So I, I think the issue is more complex mm-hmm. uh, when you examine it on the social level than mm-hmm. just on the individual choice level. F- following that example down the chain, one of the ideas people will throw out there is like, okay, then like let's have you know, a natty league, and then let's have the free world <laughs> league where like anything goes, let's see what happens and, yeah. and push the boundaries. I take it you would, you would oppose that. Well, yeah, because look, what is it about sports? Why do we feel cheated 
when we hear news that Barry Bonds was doping when he set the home run record. Well, there's something about performance enhancing drugs that takes away from what makes sports so engaging and beautiful in the first place. And that's that, you know, if you watch the Olympics, there's there's always the backstory that they're telling about the obstacles that a person overcame and how hard they had to work to get here and what they sacrificed to get a spot on the Olympic team or to qualify for the Olympic sw swim meet or what have you. And um, and that's that's a person exercising, first of all, their their natural God-given capacities, mm -hmm. which which we also celebrate. Right? Mm -hmm. Not everyone, no matter how hard they work, can make it into the Olympics. But also on top of that, having to exercise discipline and fortitude and all kinds of other virtues that we generally admire in order to achieve at that level. When you introduce the external technician working upon the body to make that person win the gold medal, mm -hmm. it's like, okay, what are we celebrating? Are we actually celebrating that athlete and his or her achievements mm -hmm. or are, was this accomplished externally through the innovations of science and technology? I believe it was the Rocky IV, one of the <laughs> sequels to the, where he's fighting the Russian guy, right? In all the sports movies, you have a scene, um, you know, somewhere before the big competition where the person is training, right? Rocky is getting up early in the morning, eating raw eggs, running around Philadelphia, climbing the stairs, you know. And we think, hey man, that's awesome. This guy's working hard to achieve his dream. So you have this, you have this back and forth uh, in Rocky IV where the, the, it's showing the Russian guy basically training in a lab with all these, with all these hooked up to all this high technology, and they're they're injecting stuff into his veins, which you know you're you're taken to believe this this is some something that's going to make him bigger, faster, stronger, sort of more deadly in the ring. And we look at those two things, and we, we want to cheer for Rocky, right? Because he's doing it the right way. And this guy's sort of cheating because, you know, if he ends up winning, maybe we should celebrate the Russian scientists rather than the, the Russian fighter. So I think there's something that is maybe hard to articulate, but deeply intuitive about why sports and athletics engages us in the first place that can help us think through this issue of enhancement and why we wouldn't really be that impressed if everyone in the NFL was doping, right? Because the point isn't just to get 10 foot tall gigantors battling it out on the football field. The, the point is to have very elite and rare human beings doing something very human, which mm -hmm. is competing in a game. Yeah. Now that makes a ton of sense. Um, what is the thing that you're horrified about that no one else is paying attention to yet, much like you were early on the trans stuff <laughs> um, or any of these other issues? What, what's what's the thing that yeah. I should get really schizo about and start re re researching on the internet now? So um, a few years ago, I started asking people what comes after T and I didn't mean QIA plus or whatever yeah. they've added on the end. I mean, what's going to be the next big push in the sex sexual revolution? And I proposed the next letter was P. Uh, as in pedophilia. And people, of course, no, how dare you? How dare you? There, there are no never slippery happen. slopes. Pay no attention to there, all of these slopes that are very exactly, well slippery. <laughs> right? The same thing that they said about transgenderism, yeah. you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. Oh, no, it's not, that's not part of our program. And, you know, whatever. Um, why do I say that? Well, these things always start 
uh, as proposals floated in elite academic circles. And for several years now, journals uh, with titles like the Archives of Sexual Behavior that, you know, no one reads unless, you know, you're you're a highly specialized academic looking at certain social science or biological research. These journals have published articles that more or less begin normalizing uh, adult minor sexual relationships. So for example, articles proposing that, you know, we shouldn't always consider adult child sex to be traumatizing because if it's done in the right way, in a loving way, under the right circumstances, for some youth, it could be a very positive experience and introduction to sexuality and sexual experience. And after all, children are sexual beings, mm. right? From yes. infancy, <laughs> right? The old Alfred Kinsey Nick, proposal <laughs> is resurfacing. You you have a new acronym, uh, MAPS, Minor yeah. Attracted yeah. Persons. I don't know if you remember the TED Talk that was floated around by... Um, very normal looking, attractive young female who was giving this TED talk about how we should start to destigmatize minor attracted persons because they don't always act in a criminalistic way on their inclinations, but having that inclination is just part of the normal sexual spectrum. It's a normal variant on sexuality in the human population. And so we're starting to see uh, for for actually many years, we have seen this kind of push in rarefied academic journals that no one reads. And it's now starting to trickle down to kind of middle brow TED Talk culture. They're floating trial balloons, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the Man Boy Love Association, which has been around for decades, has rebranded themselves recently. I forget what they call themselves now, but there's there's this professional association of of people that are trying to destigmatize being a quote unquote minor attracted person. And so it's on the face of it, it seems shockingly implausible that this would take hold. I mean, after all, parents are gonna protect their children from this sort of thing, but look around and ask yourself, are parents really protecting their children from the next big wave in the sexual revolution? Yeah. And I think the answer is, no. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I hope I can come back on this show in 10 years and say, yeah, that was crazy. You were totally overblown. I don't know what I was thinking at that time. You know, we haven't gone down that path. Doesn't look like we're going to go down that path. I obviously, I sincerely hope that is the case, but I worry that it might not be the case. Well, and it'll happen in a stepwise manner, right? right. So, like, inch by inch. Again, like, let's take the abortion issue, right? Like, there's all sorts of laws in the book all across the country that create mechanisms by which children can get abortions without their parents' permission. Yeah. And, you know, uh, again, the idea that parents will be the defense mechanism against this, mm -hmm. I mean, the weaponization of the kind of child protective services industry against parents who dissent against the liberal order is real. That's right. Um, and most people will go wherever the their center of gravity in mainstream culture is. Yeah. So.
Um, great. Well, that ruined my day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this Sorry was... <laughs> you asked, so I had to bring it up. Um, this is a fascinating conversation. Uh, where can people keep up with, with everything that you're writing and talking about on these issues? All that new think tank work you're doing since UC Irvine <laughs> politely yeah. asked you to take your talents elsewhere. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter, so you can follow me on awesome. Twitter. At, <laughs> at Acariati is my handle. Uh, I have a Substack newsletter, uh, lots of content available for free on that newsletter, aarincariati.substack.com is where you can find my work there. And I have I have links to articles. I have links to, I'll post this podcast on my Substack once it's published. So I have links to interviews, articles, essays, and so forth there. Uh, so those are the two best places to find me out there in the public square. Awesome. Well, Thank you for speaking out over these last few years and for being a rare scientific resource for the uh, sensible part of Washington, D.C. There's a lot of people who uh, failed Bio 301 in this town. And so it's uh, it's always helpful to <laughs> yeah. have um, a couple people who actually know something about technical matters and uh, and certainly bringing um, a deeply ethical and Christian approach to those issues is 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 essential as well. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed is the wrong word, but were edified by the information. I don't know if that's the right word either. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, go do something about it. Yeah. Go, go yell at your bosses. to Go to, buy some guns. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, go, go, go do a public policy. Uh, Dr. Curiati is happy to consult with congressional offices as well as state legislative offices on these matters. Uh, be sure to go to our website, AmericanMoment.org to see everything we're up to. Be sure to follow him on Twitter as well as us on Twitter. We're at AMMoment.org. Be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org slash donate, uh, to throw us a couple of, uh, dineros and, uh, help us fund all the great work we're doing here. And be sure to rate and review this podcast. Five stars only, please. Uh, and if you write something interesting in your review, we'll be sure to read it out on the show. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube so you can see Nick's ugly mug. He actually trimmed up today. He's got a haircut. His beard looks slightly smaller. If uh, for, for every thousand subscribers we get, Nick will uh, <laughs> shave more of his head. And Such. eventually we can get him looking like a cue ball. <laughs> uh, thank you guys as always for listening. And we'll see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.